All aboard the MBIT podcast with Seamus Madan. Jason, I took an Uber over here, and as I was sitting in the car, I, I thought about you for a minute, because when I learned about your story and how you used to drive for Uber at night, and now you're a GP at a firm with almost a billion dollars in assets under management, investing in entrepreneurs, making a difference in the world. I know on the show, we've had a lot of entrepreneurs and guests on the show, for example, Brian Scudamore, who started out from the bottom collecting junk and then building that into a $700 million business. And then Arthi Ramamurthy, who immigrated over from India and ended up becoming the director of product for Facebook. What do you think separates people who are able to climb up from the worst of circumstances and those who are still struggling to those who are able to climb up to that top of the ladder and reach their goals? It's a great question, honestly. And at, at the end of the day, I believe it boils down to one thing, which is like a belief in oneself. And at the end of the day, if you end up pushing yourself to be persistent and hardworking and you're just smart enough, you'll be okay. And so, you know, the story behind why I ended up driving for Uber is I had launched a company while I was an undergrad. It was a direct-to-consumer footwear company. And it was with my best friends and my brother. And we hit, a, you know, some rocky times. And after college, you know, I felt like my whole self-identity was like tied up in this startup, but also felt that heck of a lot of responsibility for my friends, for my brother and, you know, their future. And I knew that I didn't really have it in the tank to keep going with this thing really, really hard. And nor did I want to necessarily do it for the next 10 years, because like your opportunity cost at the end of the day is huge. And so I pushed them to really go and find jobs and I was going to wind down the business, but as I picked my head up to figure out what I wanted to do next, I was looking around and I was like, this whole thing, like this venture capital thing, it seems super interesting, but how do I get a job in it? Like I didn't go to an Ivy League school, so that's really, really hard to go figure out. I didn't work at a startup that was super successful. That's hard because what are you gonna point to? So the only way I knew how to do it was to go out and start to source deals. And you can't just go out and source deals for free and pay the bills and, you know, eat food every day. And so one way to create, you know, enough flexibility in my life was to go out and drive for Uber. And funny enough, I was in a meeting here at our offices a few years ago, and this guy came in, he's a partner over at a firm called Avenir. And, you know, I went up to shake his hand, said it's really nice to meet you. And he was like, oh no, we've already met. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, you were my Uber driver about 10 years ago. And it, I will never forget it because it made me love Uber because you were an entrepreneur, you were telling me your story. And ever since then, I'll never forget that business. That's awesome. You mentioned believing in yourself. I know some might be thinking in the back of their mind that they don't have the skills to do it or they're not ready or prepared enough to do it. How do you believe in yourself? Man, nobody knows what they're doing at the end of the day. Like, <laughs> you know, everybody is, you know, just trying to figure things out and like work their way through life. And I think the more that you realize that human beings don't know what they're doing and that the level of confidence is never at 100, I think it, you become more comfortable with the idea that you can figure things out as well. And a lot of that too is like, you know, the way that you're raised and, you know, if your parents are really pushing that to come out of you, or if you're finding ways to get up and basically be uncomfortable and you push yourself, if you've done that time and time again, you've built that muscle, I think your belief in yourself is going to be higher than most of your other peers. And that's ultimately going to set you aside from everyone else as well. You mentioned the importance of how you were raised. I want to focus on your childhood for a second. I believe the beginning years of our life are like the foundation for how we can turn out in the future. How has your childhood impacted your career and your life path? 
Man, I know we don't have a ton of time, so I'll try to keep this one <laughs> quick. But, you know, I, I was born with something called primary immune deficiency when I was six months old. So I was pretty sick growing up. I would get infusions every three weeks at Children's Hospital in Boston. I had to leave school early every three weeks. And, you know, I missed a bunch of, you know, different events, whether it be friends' birthday parties or, you know, trips with my school classmates and whatnot. And I think a lot of that stuff, you know, beat me up in some ways, but also built a huge amount of resilience based on like the adversity that I faced. And at the same time, you know, I, I have two unbelievably caring, loving parents that set a wonderful example for me. You know, my dad's an entrepreneur. He started his own business. He ran a business at one point in time, bootstrapped though. Most of my family do not love VCs. <laughs> and then my mom's a therapist. And so, you know, when you look at my dad and you see like work ethic and business smarts and, you know, he really cared about every single person that worked for him. I think that was one thing that really resonated with me. And then my mom's a therapist and helps out people with all of their issues. And at the end of the day, like if your mom's a therapist, your EQ is going to be pretty high. And so I think if you get the combination of a strong work ethic with really strong EQ, and then you're just smart enough, it like puts you in this like really good path. And being surrounded by then the rest of my family who, you know, rolled up their sleeves and worked on their own companies and were all bootstrapped and trying to figure things out along the way and not being afraid of failure were things that just I internalized time and time again. You had primary immunodeficiency disorder. Maybe for those in the audience who might be going through their own health struggles and still want to become founders, what would be your advice to them? You know, it's very hard at certain times when you're sick. And I mean, you and I were just talking about, I think I'm dealing with something right now and I'm dealing with certain family like health issues right now. And there are certain times in your life when you can put your foot down on the gas and you can hit go and you can run at things really, really hard. There's other times where you just can't and you don't have enough in the tank. And I think when you can't and you don't have enough in the tank, you shouldn't be afraid to raise your hand and ask for help. And that's one thing that I think when you grow up and you want to be resourceful and you want to work really hard, people are afraid to do. But it's a really important skill set to gain over time, especially if you're going to work in teams. You need no one to ask for help. But at the same time, like if you have a dream and you have a vision and you want to accomplish it and you can kind of see it out in front of you, don't be afraid to go after it. You know, I think a lot of things in life work themselves out. It just takes time. And so put your head down, make sure that you're taking good care of yourself and just continue to be persistent. You mentioned asking for help. I feel like in school, especially in high school, it's kind of taught like the opposite, right? You have tests, standardized testing. It's like sit down at the desk, 60 minutes, don't talk to anybody, do this yourself. Is there a way that we could change the current school system to maybe support more team building and teamwork? I think group projects are an unbelievable way to, to do that. And I think teachers having more office hours is certainly another aspect of that. With that said, I do not think anybody should be relying fully on the education system to, you know, cr produce the biggest learnings that they're going to get in life. I mean, when you meet with some of the best founders out there, they're people that were like, you know, bullied. They spent a lot of time in chat rooms online. They met, you know, a bunch of their friends who are now very, very successful in those chat rooms because they were so obsessed with whatever it was that they were researching and learning that they just, you know, flipped things over one thing at a time. And the difference between kids today in high school and when I was in high school is 
there's a complete democratization of information out there today. So, Ian, you can have access to people that you might not have thought you had access to. So you and I are sitting here, you know, you're 17 years old or, or close to it. And like you reach out to somebody, they're probably going to respond at the end of the day. And you can go on YouTube and you can learn how to, you know, write an investment memo or analyze a software business. Like when I was growing up, there's was, that wasn't a thing. And so what I would say is, is like, take a step back, figure out what are you interested in, and then go put together a game plan on how you want to learn about that thing between reading, listening to podcasts, watching YouTube videos, don't waste your time on TikTok, you know, and go down that path. And once you have a base of knowledge, that's when you should start sending out messages to people that are experts in the space, start building your network. And as long as you can speak to enough of the topic, people want to help others. And so write a really well-crafted, thoughtful, cold email, and you know, you'll be well on your way. And your high school teacher is not going to be able to teach you as much as the person that you reached out to. Yeah, I agree. I do want to take a step back for a second. I know when you were in middle school, you would actually start developing business plans. And to be honest, I didn't even know what a business plan was, even though I've been very entrenched in entrepreneurship until like eighth or ninth grade. How did you even start to learn about business? And what was your first encounter in the field? Yeah, you know, we we had a dial-up modem company, like like back in the day, my computer in my in my room. And, you know, one of the things that I was really lucky, even though I had primary immune deficiency, I was the, basically the face for this nonprofit here in New York. And when we were at some of the nonprofit fundraisers, a lot of the people we were trying to raise funding from were entrepreneurs and owners of companies. And I remember I was just obsessed with that conversation. Then you like add that to the fact that like all my family had started businesses. I was constantly hearing these conversations happen time and time again. And so when I started to have ideas and like identify trends and understanding like human behavior a little bit more, I was Googling like, what does a business plan look like? And I basically found like different business plan like courses online or materials from other universities and took that and then, you know, started to write some plans. And so I think my best ideas of all time came when I was probably in my middle school years because naivete is a beautiful thing. And so, you know, at the time flip phones were coming out and they were starting to grow in popularity. I was looking at Bluetooth, like the Bluetooth, you know, hearing things. And I looked at the mobile speed passes, which you probably don't even remember this, but basically gas stations, you used to be able to buy a fob and a fob was like your credit card. It was linked to your credit card. You could like swipe the fob by the thing. And I'm like, why are people not using their phones and doing, you know, paying using Bluetooth? And so I started to like write up a plan around that. And then, you know, mobile was taking off and text messaging was taking off. And at the same time, Hurricane Katrina happened. And so another one of the business plans I ended up putting together was essentially mass text messaging for emergency evacuations. So I found out that like a large percentage of the emergency evacuation plans by colleges and universities and whatnot had not been updated in years, were outdated, you know, in comparison to the newer forms of communication. And so started to write a plan around that. But what I will tell you is, is good good ideas are nothing without execution. And as a, you know, 13 year old, my execution wasn't so good. Did you take action on any of those business ideas? I did. I, I ran down like that that mobile payments company idea. I ended up, I was at a, a fundraiser and I started chatting with the guy. And it turns out that he had a somewhat similar idea, but he was trying to use text messaging to do the payments. Mm-hmm. And he was working with a bunch of the different sports stadiums at the time. And I was like, why are you going to sports stadiums? Like, this seems like something you can do, you know, elsewhere. And I would go to Boston and I met with him, you know, a handful of times. And he ended up running that business and it grew to a pretty 
you know, strong size, but he ended up working on cross-border payments using text messaging. So I learned a lot, but I look back and I'm like, damn, you know, I could have been Jack Dorsey or, or maybe even Steve Jobs when it came to that. We're sitting at your office, primary. First off, thanks for having us in the heart of New York City. Why'd you choose to delve into venture in New York instead of traditional places like Silicon Valley or San Francisco? You know, when I was thinking about getting a job in venture and decided I, I was going to get a job in venture, I had a decision to make. It was one, did I want to stay in Boston? And the answer to me was no. And the reason why was I didn't feel like Boston was on the upward trend and the macro tailwind behind it was good. I felt like it was on the downward trend. And then two, did I want to go to New York or did I want to go to San Francisco? And you look at San Francisco and San Francisco at the time was this like unbelievable market an unbelievably crowded market. And New York was in like inning one or inning two. And New York was closer to my family. And I will never forget, and, and you know, I'll give credit to, to Peter Boyce here, who was a bit of an inspiration for me. He was a general catalyst at the time. And I thought Peter did one thing incredibly well, and it was he built a dominant network between New York and Boston. And so my pitch to VCs in New York was, I already am incredibly well networked in Boston, know a ton of founders from my founder days. Bring me to New York and give me six months to get up to speed and I'll prove to you that I can build an incredibly strong network. And so, you know, I hustled my way into a job in New York and I think, you know, I made one of a strong bet on a city at the time. And then at the same time, you know, my partners at Primary, when they were starting Primary, made a bet on being long New York. And Luckily, I would say we rode the New York wave and tried to, to be on top of it. And now, you know, we're lucky enough to have over a billion dollars of, of AUM, which is amazing and, and be the largest seed fund here in New York. Yeah. You had that strong network in Boston and you use that to propel yourself through the doors to get into venture in New York. I think that is kind of a sense of being invaluable in a way because you had maybe the network that others didn't. You were able to source deals that others couldn't. Maybe for... Uh, those just graduating college or in the younger generation that maybe want to work for a company, how can they make themselves invaluable? If they want to get into venture, they should just start basically sourcing deals and creating a very strong point of view and a very strong network within one vertical or one sector. And especially if they can go into sectors that are newer or just getting hot, you know, if this was three years ago, I would have been like, yeah, go do Web3. Right now, I'm definitely <laughs> saying, you know, generative AI, but generative applied AI, you know, specifically in a market that you find compelling and you find interesting is the best way to do it. Because, you know, most investors are running around and doing a ton of different things and might sit on, you know, 10, 15 boards. Like for them to go do a ton of research at the level of depth that you could probably do, they just don't have the bandwidth. And so create that bandwidth for them and summarize those things and they'll be in good shape. And, and you know, people that decide that they want to go out and find the best people to learn from and also give them a reason to be spoken to, meaning like adding value to them in one way, shape or form, they'll always get a meeting. You mentioned the importance of building networks. How can you build a network that can scale? Ooh. Man, that just takes a long period of time. But my best, my, I think the, the best tip I would have for you. So Jason Fiedler, who's one of the founders of Left Lane Capital and I, about eight years ago, started a monthly dinner series for VCs called Table Talk. And we took a third seed investors, a third series A, and a third growth investors. 
and we brought them in and we would debate the most polarizing topics in tech. And every month we would say, you know, invite a new friend or, you know, somebody who you think would add value to this room. And the amazing part about that is if you are the aggregator of human beings, you then become the node that everyone wants to go to to get introduced. And there's a lot of value in that in its own right. And so I think figuring out ways to host events and if you can ideally go get sponsors like, you know, law firms and venture firms and accounting firms, like software companies, everyone wants to get in front of a certain group of people. So if you can apply the group of people that they want to get in front of to the sponsors, you're going to be in good shape. And that's how you will ultimately create a great scalable network. I know this, there's this guy named Andrew Young. I don't know if I pronounced that right on Twitter. I don't know if you've seen him, but he throws a bunch of tech mixers and he's been pretty successful at that. I want to get into your college experience a little bit. You launched a D2C footwear company in undergrad. Can you talk a little bit more about that experience and how you launched that company? Yeah, so it was probably 2009, summer, actually, no, summer 2010, where I remember like I started to wear boat shoes around and I got back to college and I just bought a brand new pair of boat shoes and yeah, I threw on my feet and I walked to class. And by the time I got to class, like the back of my feet were bleeding. And it was like, this is insane. Like, how do you just buy a brand new pair of shoes and they hurt? You know, that's insane to me. So, you know, if good entrepreneurs, they basically, they see a pain point, literally or figuratively, and they go and they try to solve it. And so for me, you know, I ended up going out and I found some manufacturers of shoes, which by the way, today versus 2010, the access to manufacturing and anything you need on the internet is unbelievable. So like, go hunt people down using LinkedIn, go be resourceful using Alibaba. And I spent about a year and a half with my brother and you know three of my other best friends at the time really developing this shoe. And we ended up using like PU foam, which is a lot like what Allbirds is using in their insoles today. So the shoes were more comfortable. They were engineered to be a tighter fit shoe, which we found to be the number one problem, but it took almost two years to get to market. I raised a little bit of family and friends money, like $40,000 and, you know, put in like my own bar mitzvah money, like 10 grand, I think at the end of the day. And I will never forget the first order we put in for the shoes. I spent half the money that we were raised <laughs> because you had minimum order quantities. Yeah. And so, you know, that, that lack of capital created unbelievable constraints for us. And so we launched a campus rep program with like 120 kids across 80 college campuses. We were generating a lot of revenue, you know, out of the gates and learned a ton of lessons. You know, I wish that I was more thoughtful about direct-to-consumer marketing at the time. You know, Shopify wasn't a great platform, but Facebook was super cheap back then. And it was better for us to do that and to be able to measure the acquisition channels versus the campus rep program, which in many ways, you know, college kids are pretty unreliable. So, yeah. you know, we, we invented a way to stamp the shoes with logos like yacht clubs, country clubs, fraternities. And we thought that would make it more appealing to the consumer mm. instead of just selling them, you know, high quality shoe direct to consumer for half the price. And it, it went well, you know, for the two years that we ran it, uh, a lot of late nights, a lot of pain, uh, a lot of learnings and, you know, ended up being an experience that I feel like gave me a lot more empathy for founders today. Yeah. Ultimately, I mean, you're a VC now. Why didn't you raise VC money for that business? Man, no VC said yes to me. I think I pitched like, you know, 15, 20 VCs. And I, don't, I didn't even know what venture capital was when I was first at college and started the business. <laughs> and I will never forget, you know, I showed my numbers to a VC in Boston. And the guy looked at me and he's like, well, if your CAC is that low, why are you just putting more ads on your credit card? And I looked at him, I was like, you know, my credit card's like personally collateralized by me <laughs> like you know 
and the cash flow of the business was super challenging at the time. And so, I, you know, I just wasn't prepared and didn't know enough about the industry and didn't spend enough time learning about the industry. So I fell flat on my face. And, you know, that I think the lesson from that was like, make sure before you enter the room that you can speak the language and that you really know what VC is all about. I feel like with the level of content available today, and people fall in like two categories where they either spend way too much time learning and not enough time executing or way too little time learning and too much time just trying a bunch of things and failing. How do you find a right balance? You should be able to learn enough VC talk within like 30 days, especially if you dedicate like yourself to it. I mean, for instance, when I was working on a company before I joined Primary with Mark Gerson, I didn't invest in software businesses, you know, before that. I did a lot of consumer investing. I did some B2B SaaS, but not a lot. I literally spent two weeks just locked in on every single piece of content I could find about SaaS. And then went out and put together a pitch deck with Mark to raise capital for a business called Julius. And I remember that like I'd memorized every single metric under the sun for our business and calculate every single ratio required and had figured out how to frame certain things to get people excited in comparison to when I had raised capital or tried raising capital for my last business, there was a guy named Scott Savitz, this, this VC in, in Boston. I had lunch with him and he asked me certain questions and I remember I didn't have the answer to them. And he looks at me and he goes, never answer that you don't know. <laughs> and I was like, okay, that stuck with me forever. I was never going to make that mistake again. I mean, some people also talk about like admit and understand what you don't know. How do you know when to admit what you don't know and when to just maybe make stuff up. <laughs> I think one thing that the best founders do, and in, in, you know, I appreciate what Scott said at the same time, you know, if there's certain things that you don't know, especially if they're non-core to your business or you want to learn, I think you should say like, you know, it's a really good question. To be completely honest with you, I don't have the answer, but here's how I would think about figuring it out. Or here are the experiments that I want to run to go figure out the answer to that question. And that's ultimately how you avoid coming across as like arrogant or a know-it-all or so on and so forth. Because what investors want to see is a level of coachability and a level of hunger and urgency to go out and learn, but also execute. And to your question before, by the way, I'd rather somebody who can execute that doesn't know VC lingo versus somebody who knows VC lingo that can't execute. Let's get into, you had a life crisis that you don't want to do this for the next couple of decades. What was that life crisis? Oh man, you know, we all, I think when you start a company when you're really young, like your whole identity gets tied up into it. I mean, I was working 20 hours a day. I was 25 pounds heavier than I am now. And I'm not a tall guy. I'm like five, eight, you know? <laughs> and so I think I was like almost a buck 80. And, you know, I won this like entrepreneurship award at the University of Miami. We had all this press out there between the Boston Globe and certain things. And I was like, you know, this isn't working. And Sure, people can think on the outside and social media is a great way to, to fake things these days. But internally, I just knew it wasn't going to happen. And so I could continue to like live a lie and run the thing or I could, you know, basically shut it down or try to sell it. And when I decided that the right call was to, to originally try to sell it and then eventually shut it down, I was just like, what the heck do I want to do? You know, I feel like I'm going to be judged. And I needed to figure out, like, I didn't have the confidence to start another company again. And did I want to go work for a friend of mine's company? And I was pretty close to a yes on that. But I took a step back and I was thinking about, like, where did I really want to get to? And what would be the best path to get there? And how do I, like, what do I want to optimize for? And venture capital at the time seemed like the best next step for me. 
And before venture capital, you were an Uber driver where you drive at night, like you mentioned earlier. I feel like a lot of times, especially when you're younger, you care a lot about what other people think of you. And you might not do certain things just because you don't want to disappoint your parents or disappoint the other people around you for not taking that tech job at a big company or something like that. What was going through your mind when taking that career path? You know, people are so busy with their own lives and so like there's so much going on that in their own heads that like most people don't care about the decisions that you make. It's all a narrative and a story in your head that you're telling yourself. And if they do and they're judging you, like screw them, who cares? And so go do what like you want to go do in the way that you want to do it because it's your life and not theirs at the end of the day. And I think anyone who really likes you that you also really like will not be happy for you if you're not happy in a job. They will be happy for you if you're enjoying the life that you're living. And that's something that I think people need to recognize and realize a lot earlier in life. How did you eventually transition from driving Uber to then going into venture capital? So funny enough, like I had gotten my real estate license when I was like 18 and was like, you know, my brother was in real estate and he was, you know, really nice and like, was like, hey, you should come help out with this company. And so I did that for a little bit. And then we launched the direct to consumer company. And when I was kind of winding down, I needed to put together a game plan to get a job in venture. And my game plan was, I'm going to go source a ton of deals. I'm going to go build an investment thesis and I'm going to share all these deals with VCs. And I got an intro to one VC. And I remember on the call, I was like, hey, I'm happy to send you deals and I'm happy to send you my like theses and do a lot of work for you for free. But in return, I want an intro to one more VC. (laughs) And so I literally just started going like one meeting at a time. And I think I got introduced like 15 VCs and one thing led to another. And I took a trip to New York and I met David Goldberg from Corrigan Ventures, which is now called Alpaca at the time. And he took a shot on me and, you know, him and Ryan gave me a 90 day trial and I was lucky enough to, to, you know, source a couple of deals while I was there and, and work on Latch, which is a smart lock company that went public a couple of years ago. And that first investment in Latch and, you know, my work with Luke Schoenfelder, the founder, and I think the mutual level of respect that came between the two of us led to the introduction to Ben and Brad, who started Primary, where I'm at now, because they were investors in the company. And there's no better way to diligence an investor than by talking to the founders who they've worked with. And when they were hiring, Luke called me and was like, you should talk to Ben and Brad. And Ben and Brad talked to Luke and he he was like, you should hire Jason. And so it like happened to work out really, really well. And and now we're here. You had a LinkedIn post I was reading the other day, also on Twitter, saying venture capital is pretty hard. And a venture-backed seed stage startup has an estimated one in 40 shot or two and a half percent chance of becoming a unicorn. How do you find that one in 40? Because I've talked to a lot of investors that have said the ones that they thought were going to skyrocket ended up going nowhere. And then some of the ones they thought were going nowhere ended up skyrocketing and didn't become very large investments. So how difficult it is to find that one in 40? And then how do you do it? Yeah. First off, venture capital is incredibly hard and it takes a really long time to figure out if you're good at it. And I think people have glorified the world of VC. Like when I was younger and when I got into venture, like it wasn't a really, really sexy job. And now it's become an incredibly sexy job. And when I first got into venture, it was a lot of kumbaya and it was a lot of like collaboration. Now it's unbelievably competitive. It's institutionalized. And when an industry is institutionalized, a lot of capital flows in, the market gets efficient, which means returns drop 
and people start competing with each other because they want to raise more money, more AUM means more fees, but then that means you need more ownership, right? And so with this in particular, I've had a lot of really good mentors at Seed who have said like, you know, a lot of Seed investing is like throwing darts at a dartboard. Well, go tell that to Ben, you know, my partner who basically has like a 35% unicorn hit rate over the course of his career at Seed. And if you ask me like how, it's basically like one, you need to bet on the right markets because if you're surfing the right wave and like you're winning on that wave, you're in a really good place. Now, how do you pick the right market? I mean, one, you need to like figure out what the like right why now is for sure. And like generative AI and a platform shift and mobile and like all those things, those were wonderful. However, there are a lot of businesses today that if people did the work up front to learn more about that industry and that vertical and other case studies that came before it, they would avoid, in my opinion, 50% of the zeros that they back today. And the reason being, and I'll give you a specific example, we look at companies all the time that you know want to build this B2B software company going after SMBs. And I look at their financial model and they think that the CAC is going to be X. Well, go call five companies in the space. <laughs> What's their CAC? What was their CAC? What was the channel they used? And if the economics don't work, because the CAC of this company, you know, that's already existing and at scale is 5X what they're talking about, don't do the deal, you know? And so if you can educate yourself a little more in the market, I think that's really, really important. And then the second thing is like, you need to back maniacal founders. Like when I say maniacal, I mean like people who have an insane sense of urgency, like a hunger like you've never seen before, desire to win and to learn and an ability to sell stock sell people and sell their product. And if like you have all of those in like one package in a good market and a great founder, then you're gonna be okay. And I think you'll have the best shot to get a, a company that's gonna be a unicorn. Currently right now you focus on built world businesses as well and prop tech. Um, why is that an industry that's exciting you right now? Yeah, I mean, we're undergoing a pretty interesting like shift right now. When you look at interest rates, you know, going up, it's creating a lot of challenges in, in, in the real estate world. And at the same time, we're going over like a generational turnover of owners. And so historically, you know, most owners have been making money hand over fist and they haven't needed to change, you know, any of the ways that they've gone about things. That's starting to change, right? We have a massive shortage of housing here in the United States. We need to fill that gap at a human need and level. And so like there needs to be innovation that ultimately comes there as well. And we need to continue to fill the gap on the labor shortage that's causing a lot of other issues here. And so there's a lot of problems that have kind of presented themselves. And you know, even a mass shortage of home service providers and like people need their air conditioning fixed when it's 120 degrees out, like we gotta figure out ways to make people more efficient. You layer all those things on with things like generative AI, and all of a sudden you have this really amazing intersection of both macro tailwinds and like a platform shift. And that's where like the magic kind of comes together and happens. You mentioned generative AI a couple of times. I feel like, you know, back in the uh, late 1990s when the internet was starting to pop off, a lot of companies would just layer on Web2 onto existing business models. For example, we saw that with digital textbooks, right? It didn't work. And we also see that, I believe, with AI. We're founders for trying to layer AI onto old business models. How do you avoid doing that and actually create a new business model for your company? You know, I, I don't know if it's as much about the, the business model per se as it is about the product and like the user experience. 
And so anytime we're evaluating a business, we want to see, is it a 10X product compared to whatever the person was using before? And depending on the type of customer you're going after, like building a brand new user experience for them might be easy if it's like you're using generative AI and a text user interface for somebody who's currently using spreadsheets or facts, right? And that actually might be an easier on-ramp versus using a traditional vertical software tool. But if like, let's say you're a home services software company and you're going up against service Titan, like that might be a little bit harder and you better make sure that there's not an incremental, you know, improvement, but how are you going to 10 X the experience? Because when you call, you know, Andy and his large HVAC company, he's not going to take your call if he doesn't look at this and be like, oh my God, I need this. And so what you really want at the end of the day are painkillers and not vitamins. And that's what we're constantly looking for here. You're a board member going back to U Miami for a second of U Miami entrepreneurship. I feel like nowadays there's very little, I'm, I'm sure it's much more than a few decades ago, but very little consideration of entrepreneurship in you know the admissions process. Obviously, once you're there, they got entrepreneurial centers, et cetera. But I feel like in the admissions process itself, it's mainly focused on you know, your test scores, your grades, et cetera. Does that have to change? And if so, how? Might be better for people that it's not. Because <laughs> like then if you get rejected by more schools, you know, you're going to be hungrier and, and want to go learn on your own. And, and I mean that like sincerely, like I, I actually think rejection and adversity like builds, you know, stronger humans and better entrepreneurs. But I, I do think that universities need to be taking it into more account because there's nothing funnier than when like, you know, you get into a university, they were paying a lot of attention to you because like you were some entrepreneurship kid and like, you know, they want to be sending kids off to like JP Morgan and right. like, you know, BCG and McKinsey. And then, you know, it turns out that at 30 years old, you're the only one that's exited a company for a billion dollars, or you're the only one that's, you know, a GP at a, at a large venture firm. And then they come calling and they ask for donations. Exactly. And so, you know, I, I, I do think that they should consider it more. And if they were really good, they're going to do what Stanford's doing, which is they're going to bring in unbelievable speakers because most of entrepreneurship to me is about exposure to great talent. So if people see what great looks like and they try to mirror that, they say, that's my North Star, then they're going to be in good shape. But if they try to learn from professors, I think they're just going to end up in a bad spot. Gotcha. Um, and I think building a company, you know, we've had a couple of VCs on the show before that talk about the importance of maybe just building a company instead of going directly to university, take a year off or something like that. Do you think that if you have an idea, you should start your company, pursue it, see how it goes, and that could end up being more valuable than just pursuing a degree directly out of high school? The, it depends on the person. Yeah. You know, I mean, one of the best founders that, that I've worked with and had the opportunity to work with is somebody I met when he was 17 years old. He had two failed startups, went to Penn, worked at GoPuff while he was there and now runs a $2 billion company, you know, but at the time, my friends and I, who, who started to mentor him a little bit, pushed him to go to college because like there's a lot of maturity that happens when you're in school. Right. And I think that it can be advantageous for some people. There's other people who, you know, have certain levels of maturity and certain experiences working at companies already. Like if you're 17, 18 and you want to go work at a startup for two years and then go start your own thing, I'm all for it. Like, I don't think going, you know, $250,000 into debt is the most advantageous thing. 
at the end of the day for a lot of people. So it depends on what you value and what you're going to do with your time. I do not believe that most 18 year olds should just go start a company without any operating experience because they don't know what great looks like. Yeah. I mean, we've talked to before, like with Matt McGinnis from Rippling, he met, he told me, he's like, Seamus, if you decide to start a company, work for a high growth startup first before you get, you start your own. So you know what product market fit like knows looks like, and you know what the right speed, et cetera, looks like, you know, speaking of that, everybody talks about having the right people in place for the business. How do you find, or especially for you as a VC, how do you evaluate people and founders when they're pitching you? Yes, there's a really good book called Who that's all about like hiring, but I think it actually gives investors a very good framework for evaluating talent. And the reason being is if you can identify the core traits that you believe a human being needs to have in order to be a great founder, you can write that list down. And then you write that list down and then you write questions that have to do with those, you know, key traits. And you just need a lot of reps to figure out like, you know, is that a good answer, a great answer or an okay answer? And, you know, I've been in venture now for almost eight years. Like, I think that I've seen a very wide range of reps and a very wide range of people. But the reality is too, like a lot of VCs tend to be attracted towards certain types of founders. It can be different for different VCs, but you know, I like people that are, like I said, huge sense of urgency. They're moving really fast. If I quiz them on like a question, you know, they have the answer to it. They're really, really smart. Or they come back to me within 48 hours with the answer to it. And they probably went out and they found the answer from three experts, yep. you know. And when I, the last question I would say that we always ask ourselves around this table, would we want to compete with this person? Yeah. If the answer is no, that's the type of person that you want to get money to. Gotcha. Everyone, if you had to pick one thing on the opposite end of the spectrum on maybe why companies fail or why a founder might fail or most likely fails, what would it be? They don't learn fast enough. How do you learn fast? You go hunt down experts and you have structured thinking around experiments that you want to run, what you want to learn from those experiments, and you measure everything, <laughs> everything. Gotcha. You also talk about how a venture capital wash is coming. So the opposite, similar to what we talked about a little bit earlier with how hard venture capital is. Why do you say it's coming and what would that look like? I mean, just look at the amount of money that's flowed into VC over the last however many years. I mean, there are a ton of seed funds. There are a ton of multi-stage funds. And I think it's going to be nearly impossible for everybody to generate strong returns. It was already, by the way, incredibly hard to generate strong returns before. I mean, top quartile returns were not great. Top quartile returns were fine on a risk-adjusted basis, especially based on the fact that you know, these assets and venture funds are very illiquid. And so if you have a lot of funds that have come in that are not doing the work and are, you know, meeting a founder, backing people based off of gut, not thinking about portfolio construction, not thinking about reserves, there's no real formula or intentional, you know, reasoning behind things. I think it's going to be reflected in their returns and their inability to go out and raise additional capital. And LPs aren't piggy banks at the end of the day. Like you need to make them money. I mean, they're nonprofits, they're endowments, they're, you know, pension funds. And so we need to make sure we're looking out for them as an industry at the same time. And so I would anticipate, you know, a ton of micro funds go by the wayside unless they can continue to raise from high net worth individuals and founders and whatnot. And I would anticipate that, 
you're going to see a lot of people retiring or phased out of certain venture funds because you know they paid 400x or 300x ARR in a Series A for a company that didn't have you know any product market fit. Speaking of, I think hype is something that a lot of us can get enveloped in, especially with AI. How do you use hype as an advantage? For example, getting involved in AI, but also make sure you're making conscious and the right decisions. I'm going to take it in a different way, which would be, how do you build hype in the market? Because one of the most important skill sets, by the way, I think that investors need to have is the ability to help their companies fundraise. And so when a company is going out and raising capital, the more intentional that they are about a tight process that they're going to run and playing off the psychology of investors, the better off they're going to be. And so investors want to be taken to the moon on your vision. They want to see how big you can think. And then they want to see how well you can zoom from out to in on the micro. And what's the execution? What's the traction? And so on and so forth. But they also want to know that other people are looking at the deal because if you're more, if you're more attractive you know, to other investors, then it's a really, really positive thing. And so I think lining up you know, 20 plus investors in that first week, all of those meetings, stack them and make sure that there are three or four practice pitches or ones that you're highly confident about you know, being able to raise capital from. Ideally, you spoke to them six months before to know that they're interested or your VC spoke to them six months before and then go and just hammer the fundraise and you know, try to drive to a term sheet as fast as possible with someone, and then you can use that to kind of play off everybody. Sometimes we see founders will continuing to raise the next round from pre-seed, seed, series A, and by doing that, they get themselves in the mental mindset of, okay, how do I raise the next round, or how can I raise more money? How can founders keep the focus on the customer instead of on the fundraising? So... Fundraising at the end of the day is like a means to an end, right? Each round you're basically raising to prove another set of milestones. If you're not doing that and you're just raising for the sake of raising, such the wrong thing. And you're going to be more successful as a company in being able to hit those milestones if you are customer obsessed. I mean, go read a lot about Jeff Bezos. That guy was customer obsessed. You talk to the best founders, they're customer obsessed. They still talk to end customers every single week. And so if you remain customer success and at the same time remain focused on what are the milestones that are needed to unlock the next round of financing, if it's needed, you know, which oftentimes a lot of companies need to burn capital in order to build up their moats or their market share or hit milestones to make the next round valuation make sense. I think they'll be in plenty of good shape. Speaking of customer obsessed, you know, Eric Wan, who founded Zoom, the only reason he was able to found that company is because he kept talking to WebEx users who were still using Cisco WebEx and found that the experience was just deteriorating. And after being dismissed by the executives over at Cisco, he left and founded Zoom, his own company. And we all know how that went compared to WebEx. So as we wrap it up here, if you couldn't have accomplished one thing before you die, what would it be? Ooh. I would love to really impact the lives of over a million people in a positive way in at least one way, shape, or form. And for me, like my mission is all about helping others live a more fulfilling and successful life, however it is that they define that. And so if I can help unlock that for people, whether it be through things like this or you know other endeavors that I plan on going after later on in my life, then I'll be a happy man. Awesome. Well, Jason, thanks for taking the time to join the podcast. Greatly appreciate it. 
For those of the audience, we'll have a link to Primary Ventures in the episode description down below. Any founders, you can check them out. If you're looking to raise capital, well worth it. Well, thanks, Jason. Greatly appreciate your time. Thanks for having me, man.